0: Welcome, everyone. I'm glad that uh, you're here. Um, if you're new here, and uh, or have been here just a few times, we just uh, want to continue to extend our hand of uh, a welcome, our hand of uh, friendship and brotherhood in the Lord. And just, uh, I'm glad that you're here, and uh, I'm glad that we're looking into these different snapshots, as I've called them, these different areas of Jesus' life leading up to. Uh, Resurrection Sunday here in two weeks. We're on our third week. The last couple of weeks we've looked at some of Jesus' greatest moments. Uh, my words, I think it's accurate, so I'm going to step out on a little bit and say, hey, th- these, are the, these are the things that I think are some of Jesus' greatest moments, some of the greatest snapshots of his life, some of the most impactful passages, and, and uh, some of the most... Uh, deepest truths you might say I'd say they're all truths and they're all deep but uh, they really have had an impact the first week we looked at Jesus greatest verse John three sixteen. the second week last week we looked at his greatest miracle raising Lazarus from the grave in John chapter 11 and today we're going to look at a gospel passage where uh, conviction is really on full display Conviction is really on full display in a variety of ways in different people. And I think in that passage, you're going to see a lot of contrast. You're going to see a lot of different motives that different people take on, and, and they, they start to act or respond in different ways. Um, some good, some not so good. But in this passage, we're going, to, we're going to distill it down to really what I think is one of the greatest scenes of conviction in all of the Bible. We've looked at the greatest verse, the greatest miracle. Today we're going to look at the greatest conviction. Conviction itself, if you look it up in the dictionary, really boils down to this statement it's a fixed or firm belief. That's what conviction is. Like this thing is not moving. This thing that I believe is true, this thing that, that you believe is true, is rock solid. It's not going anywhere, it's fixed. It's solid. It's firm. You don't have to wake up in the morning and say, oh, where, where, where did that conviction go? No, it's, it's there. And you're going to see that idea play out time and time again in the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels. We're really going to see it come through in, uh, in this passage, I believe. Of all the passages that you could read on Jesus and the four Gospels. I think this one really is his moment of greatness prior to the cross, of course, and prior to the resurrection. I've shared this, uh, this basic truth many times. I've seen it play out in a, a variety of ways. I uh, was a volunteer fireman for a lot of years, and so you show up at a house fire, you show up at a car crash. You show up where somebody is, uh, has passed away. Uh, you show up where, where someone's, you know, child um, has, is in desperate need of help. Um, I did CPR on a teenage boy for an hour on top of a 60-foot silo. That's probably one of the toughest days in my life. And this basic truth plays out, and I've seen it time and time again. I've seen it in tough, tough ways, and tough situations, like what I've mentioned. I've seen it in glorious uh, and fun uh, situations, um, not to be all doom and gloom. Uh, I've seen this truth play out Friday night in our football game, Chihuila, where we overcame this this big deficit. And, and, and you think, why? Why is why is that? That it's real. It's true like we had a halftime speech that would, that would peel the paint off of these walls. And I didn't say a lot. It wasn't me. I'm not the head coach. But what I saw is I saw a group of young men be faced with the reality of how are they going to respond when things get tough. And are they going to rise up and be men? Or are they going to continue to be boys? Are they going to face the adversity? Are they going to face the dragon head on and let the chips fall where they may. Let the score end up be what it's going to be. Or are they going to continue to bicker and fight amongst themselves, and cast blame? Are they going to take ownership? Are they going to be men and grow up and take ownership of their own struggles? Or are they not? That was really the question that I had walking out of the, the halftime locker room. And uh, to um, great delight. <laughs> it ended up being a a, a quite a game um, i'll throw in a free pitch for our, for uh, ronda christian down at the high school she runs this it's called the chile unofficial sports page because it can't be an official sports page and affiliated with anything but she she records all the games you can jump on facebook and watch it i'll let you do that on your own time i really want to watch the whole game right now on the big screen i'm just gonna be honest and I could do that real easy. I think most of you guys would probably leave. But <laughs> What I'm driving at is this idea, this truth that I've seen time and time and time again. And it applies in great times. It, it applies in real difficult times. It has applied in your life. It's been, it's been active in my life. And that's this belief, is that people respond to difficult situations Difficult situations according to their deepest held beliefs. What you really believe is true. That firm, fixed conviction. What you really believe. What I really believe is true. When I'm pressed to the max... When I'm in that tough situation, where I'm, when I'm faced with, am I going to keep going? Am I going to keep playing harder? Am I going to keep pressing into this thing? Am I going to stay with it? Am I going to stay in this relationship and see it out? When we are pressed to our, 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 our toughest spot, our deepest held beliefs will, will come to the surface. I will guarantee you that's true every time. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in many of your lives. Like I said, I've seen it in the past. And I've seen it even just a few nights ago. And perhaps no other gospel passage displays this consp- concept like the 26th chapter of Matthew. Matthew 26 is a look into the last hours before Jesus was arrested. It's a look at the last conversation that he had with his friends. It's the last meal. It's the last communion that he has. We'll read through this, all of this. It's the last words of encouragement and direction he has with his disciples. It's the last chance that they have to go out and to pray and to be before the Father. It's really the calm before the storm in this suspenseful finale of, of a story, which, which we know because we, have, we can look back at this, we can look back and see what's written, see what's, what's been taught, what's been true, that it's really not the finale. But if you take yourself 2,021 years ago and put yourself in this little community just outside of Jerusalem, this little town, this little community, this little suburb of Bethany, and you put yourself in the room and imagine yourself just being a, you know, a fly on the wall in the room, you would think, oh no, this is all coming to an end. What's going to happen? What's he talking about? Why, why are they doing that? Why is she doing that? Why, what's Judas doing And you would be like completely perplexed. I know I would be. What is going on here? Why is he talking the way he's been talking? He keeps talking about having to suffer. He keeps talking about giving himself up. He keeps talking about being, he uses this sacrificial language. What's that all about? It's confusing. And it seems like this ministry that's just taken off in in Galilee and, and throughout that region now is like all of a sudden it seems like it's kind of imploding. What is going on? These are those last few minutes that he has. And I think that it's, it, it, it plays out this way. It kind of comes down to all in or all out. We're having this conversation this last Sunday after church, and the, uh, it was just Josh and I and Dave Wantlin in the uh, office, and uh, Josh was sharing something that he had been reading, something that was really challenging to him, and And uh, he brought up this concept, and I've was i been studying through this passage trying to figure out, like, uh, how how do we approach this 26th chapter of Matthew? And Josh was talking, as he was talking, uh, and I wasn't listening. (laughs) Don't, Don't tell him I said so. He's sitting right over here. I was listening, but what I heard him say, the Holy Spirit said, there it is to me. And what Josh was talking about is he's reading through this book of, like, From Francis Schaeffer, the Christian Manifesto, and he's and it talks about uh, he talks about in that book for a believer, what is our bottom line? What's our bottom line? Like, what are we willing to? How far are we willing to 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 flex? How far are we willing to, you know, capitulate to society to cultural norms? Those are some of the things that that he was kind of talking about and applying. And this chapter is all about that idea. It's all in or all out. It's a good question that we should all find the answer to. What is your, and write this down in the margin of your Bible, write this down on your back of your bulletin, what is your bottom line and stuff? Like where do you say, where do I say, this is enough, I'm not going any further than right here. No questions asked. This is it. And this chapter's all full. There's like six or seven bottom lines in this chapter. I don't even know if we'll get to them all. But there's all these bottom lines that people start to apply in this difficult hour, in these last few hours, in these hours that become really, really stressful as the storyline goes on. What action or actions will you take when you're called to take a stand? Uh, a small spoiler here it cannot remain. It cannot remain for us hypothetical. Our society makes all kinds of shifts, it makes all kinds of, of postures, it makes all kinds of decisions based on hypothetical, on the hypothetical thing. That's very normal. All this pump up and hype and, and, and uh, you know, hoorah about different things in our culture, mostly, if you really boil it down, mostly are in the hypothetical category. It's the what-ifs. The great thing is is that uh, I don't think that if you look through the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I don't know that you would find any teaching from Jesus that's based on something that's hypothetical. He speaks in parables to bring out points, but it's not hypothetical. It's not a situation of, well, hypothetically, you know, hypothetically, if you're persecuted, this is what you should do. No, that isn't it. He says that if, if people hate me, then they're going to hate you, Christ's follower. That's the way it is, bottom line. If people don't like me or they reject me, guess what? Bottom line is they're going to reject you if you follow me. If you don't follow me, hey, there's no pushback. There's no trouble for you. Really? Not at all. So he doesn't speak in hypotheticals. He doesn't teach in hypotheticals. He teaches with bottom line conviction and accuracy let's take a look at these variety of different bottom lines turn in your Bibles or follow along up on the screen Matthew chapter 26 starts right off <clears throat> verse 1 now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he had said to his disciples you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the, at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast lest there be any uproar among the people. Let's pause there and look at some bottom line realities. The first bottom line we're going to look at is the religious leaders in Israel the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Those who were leading Israel from a, 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 a belief perspective. Rome was leading Israel from a militaristic perspective. They had conquered uh, Israel. And so they had overall uh, oversight as far as it being a region of the Roman Empire. But inside of that, and kind of on this back room, you know, shifty, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of a deal, there was was kind of an agreement between the Roman leadership and the Israel's religious leadership, right? And so if if we can take care of, if we can deal with this Jesus fella, but let's not do it where it's going to cause an uproar. Why were they worried about an uproar? Were they worried about the people? I think they were worried about the people, but I think they were worried because if the people got all stirred up, then in comes Rome and nobody wins. If we can do it quietly, if we can do it kind of behind the scenes, if we can take this Jesus guy out and his followers and squish this upstart belief, squish this new group that's rising up, if we can do that kind of quietly... It kind of all goes away. We stay in Rome's favor. Everything's good. We'll line their pockets and they'll line our pockets. That was kind of the mentality that was going on there. The bottom line for these religious leaders in Israel is they were all about exercising their authoritarian control while posturing themselves and looking like the good Good guy. That's kind of the perspective that they have. They they, they they want to be respected. Aren't they in control? Sure they are. They want to be respected. They want to be seen as the good guys. They want the attention. They want the following. They want the finances. They want the obedience. But they're doing it all for personal gain and for posturing, for position. And so it's really an exercise of authoritarian control while appearing to be somebody else. That's their bottom line. That's been their bottom line all along. And, of course, when they say that the crowds would be in an uproar, it wasn't just an average, average time in Jerusalem. During the Passover, Jerusalem swelled, you know. The, the, the population of Jerusalem would swell three, four times as people would choose to come to Jerusalem that time, not just for the Passover, but also for Pentecost, it's kind of uh, getting two vacations, two celebrations for the price of one, because you only had to stay an extra 50 days. So they were aware of that, and they plotted, the word says, they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him, and at any cost as long as it doesn't reflect poorly on them. Or the word says there, that not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Verse 6 says, And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, Simon, of course, the guy that he cured of leprosy, verse 7 says, A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table, But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you will have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memoir to her. And that verse right there is happening today, 2,021 years later. And it's not just happening in this church. It's happening all over the world. As people take a look at these passages throughout the course of a year's worth of sermons, and particularly in this season, Our second subject to look at, bottom lines, is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. We see that in John chapter 12, 11 and 12. We talked about that last week. The same Mary crosses town to Simon the leper's house. It brings this super expensive perfume, burial perfume, and anoints Jesus with it. Spurgeon says this, The beauty of this woman's act consisted in this, that it was all for Christ. All who were in the house could perceive and enjoy the perfume of the precious ointment. But the anointing was for Jesus only. Mary's bottom line is this. Mary is going to anoint Jesus despite the financial and social cost. We get that? She's making a choice. She's making a sacrifice. And she doesn't care because there's a greater purpose involved here. There's a greater work here. And what it is, the sacrifice is this. It's a sacrifice of worship. She's worshiping Jesus in this moment. Despite the cost, despite the social cost, she was demonstrating her devotion her adoration, and her worship to Jesus. All of those who have done wonders for Christ have always been called eccentric or fanatical. Why, when Whitfield Whitfield first went on Bennington Common to preach, because he could not find a building large enough, it was quite an unheard of thing to preach in open air. How could you expect God to hear prayer if there was no roof over the top of people's heads? How could souls be blessed if the people had not had seats and regular high-backed pews to sit in? Whitfield was thought to be doing something outrageous, but when he went and did it, he went and broke the alabaster box on on the head of his master, and in the midst of scoffs and jeers, he preached in the open air. And what came of it? A revival of godliness and a mighty spread of religion. I wish we were all <clears throat> I wish we were all of us ready to do some extraordinary thing for Christ, willing to be laughed at, to be called fanatics, to be hooted and scandalized because we went out of the common way and were not content with doing what everybody else could do or approve to be done. Charles Spurgeon said that about his friend. Isn't that a crazy idea? That if you do something crazy like Mary did, the world's going to have a view of you. And the question comes down for all of us whose view are we most worried about? Whose view do we care about the most? Society's view? Our culture's view? Your neighbor's view? Or your Savior's view? Jesus said, "Hey, hey, this lady's going to be remembered for the rest of time, because of what she's doing. We're doing that right now." I'd say that was a pretty awesome thing. I would say that her worship of Jesus stands way, way high in the preciousness of God's kingdom. That's what I would say. Spurgeon says the same thing, and he gives this example of Whitfield's preaching. In open air? How scandalous that would be, right? I remember as a kid going down to Joe Albee Stadium. Open air. And who were we listening to? Billy Graham. Open air preaching. Thousands get saved. Millions have gotten saved. Probably tens of millions have gotten saved over the decades and centuries in open air preaching. Which at one point was thought to be Unacceptable. Mary's sacrifice of worship, her sacrifice and cost, is a great demonstration for us to reevaluate our bottom line. What are we willing to do to worship God? What are we willing to sacrifice? What are we willing to put out there today, this week, this month, during 2021, 2022, all these chaotic times that we live in, The question keeps rising up, men and ladies and kids. What are we willing to to put out there for Christ's sake? For His glory, for His worship. Mary has a pretty awesome bottom line. Let's read on. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot. You can feel free to say boo at any point. Um. No, I'm serious about that. Like, I'm totally fine when preaching a sermon and somebody like Judas comes up, everybody's like, boo. He's not the good guy in the story, let's be honest. Um, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went, went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give if I deliver him to you? And they counted him out 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Judas has perhaps one of the saddest bottom lines in the Bible. Judas being our third contestant in this arena. Judas' bottom line is exactly the opposite. And I think that Matthew does a wonderful job of bringing contrast to the story. First talking about what's right, what's good, what's holy. What God accepts in Mary's sacrifice as contrasted to Judas's bottom line, which was money. Judas' bottom line was money, and he was willing to do whatever it took for whatever he wanted, and we're not exactly sure. Let's be honest about that. Whether it's fame or revolt or social status, we're not quite sure. What we are sure of is this, that Judas was motivated definitely by the money. And maybe he thought that he was doing an extraordinary thing for Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? It's possible. We don't know. But it is possible that, that perhaps Judas thought he was somehow hastening this thing along. He was kind of speeding up the timetable. Because if Jesus was the Messiah, why are we fiddling around? Let's just get it going here, let's get the thing moving. Let's take over Rome. Let's kick them out. Let's reestablish. This is what every, every Jew wanted in Israel in the first century. Get rid of Rome. Get back to the way we're supposed to be led. Get back to governing ourselves under God. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a great thing? Sure it is. But it, what, at what cost? At what end? And I don't, we don't know if that's Judas' motivation. We do see pictures and other passages of his regret, for sure. And a sad end to a sad story with his own demise, for sure. But in this moment, his bottom line was, I'm going to give him up for the money. So money is really all that was on his mind. Verse 17 goes on to say, now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples in Jesus came to Jesus and saying to him, "Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover?" And he said, "Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, "The teacher says, "My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples." So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. All the air just left the room. Verse 22 says, And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Didn't they know about COVID? Didn't they know that you're not supposed to touch other people's food? Where's their rubber gloves? I'm not making fun of the Bible. I'm just. It ain't right. Verse 24 says, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for him that this man had not been born. Wow. What a statement. (laughs) Then the gall of this guy. Like, you want to talk about the ultimate trying to play something off? Then Jesus, who is betraying him, answers and said, Well, Rabbi, is it I? Duh, you just took the money, dude. Like, don't try to be an idiot. Act like it's not you. He's trying to fit in, I suppose and he says to him you have said it again jesus is not working with hypotheticals our number 4 obvious subject in the bottom line game here is jesus himself and in this passage actually he gets a couple of uh, he gets a couple of shots at being the bottom line person in this passage in this chapter But in this one, Jesus' bottom line is very specific because Jesus knew his purpose and his plan. Do we get that? Do we see that in Matthew 26? Jesus knew his purpose and his plan. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what he had to do. He knew these three things. He knew that it was coming quick. He knew that the Old Testament prophecy was being fulfilled right then, right there like in real time, as as these events are going on. I believe Jesus was very aware of the 350 Old Testament prophecies, and we've talked about these at length in different passages, different sermons. But the 350 biblical passages that were just being checked off the list, boom, 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 very aware of that. Where do I get that? Right in verse 24 where he says, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of Him. He knew what his part was, and he knew what the Word said. The third thing that he was aware of is that he knew that it would, <clears throat> he knew that this whole thing would be activated by betrayal. That the active ingredient for, the, for what was about to happen in this last night, this last opportunity, was going to be perhaps the saddest act of the whole night, is is that somebody very close to him, somebody that he had spent time with, somebody that he had taught, somebody that he had had, uh, traveled with, somebody that he had laughed with, somebody that he had cried with, somebody that he had done life with, that it was going to be one of those guys, one of those types of people that were going to stab him in the back, that were going to betray him. So he knew that it would be activated by this idea of betrayal. That's why he kept talking about it. And eventually he just simply said in verse 25, in response to Judas's question, hey, you've said it. You're the dude, right? Let's keep moving on. Verse 26. And, they, <clears throat> and as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said... Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my, the blood of, my, of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until <clears throat> that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Even though the storyline here is about Jesus and it's about him taking this last communion, really, I think that the uh, bottom line person here for, that I put out is the Father himself. And here's the reason why, is that God was bringing this new covenant for those that would trust in him. He was bringing this new relationship. He was setting the foundation. He was, he was, he was building this building of relationship with his people and setting the foundation for that in this new covenant. And it was confirmed in the broken body of Jesus and centered, this new covenant was centered on the shed blood of Jesus because it was more about our sin problem than our society problem. That's where it falls. That's where the bottom line falls down. They're stressed. Maybe Judas was stressed. All of Israel was stressed about their societal problems. And God's saying, that's not it. The real issue, the real thing that has us captive, the real thing that's got us under under the thumb is our sin issue, not our society issue. And that dynamic is still just as true today. It's true for us. It's always been true. There's a way out of that. There's a way of freedom beyond that that has nothing really to do with society, and it has everything to do with being freed from our sins. That's why Jesus came. Then Jesus said to them in verse 31, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answers and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you this night, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says in reply to Jesus, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you, and so said all the disciples. Little phrase there, tagged onto the bottom. It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't just Peter putting his foot in his mouth. It was really all the disciples. They all were jumping on Peter's bandwagon. And I don't have necessarily a bottom line person here, uh, although I think it's fair to say that maybe Peter could. You know, Peter tries to make a pseudo bottom line, and Jesus says, "Oh, that's not going to work this way." Now we've just finished through a series of First and Second Peter, uh, prior to going into this series, and we really see, you know, the, the later Peter, and how dynamic uh, his life changed. Even if you jump into the first few chapters of the Book of Acts, you will see uh, this hastily uh, hasty guy here that's willing to just do whatever and make these statements and not really understand the context of what's going on, you will see a completely different Peter. But let's move on. Verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were weary, were heavy, excuse me. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting behold the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners rise let us be going see my betrayer is at hand over the years I've listened to a lot of sermons about this passage a lot of great sermons a lot of very intricately detailed sermons about you know the the sweat being drops of blood and the scientific pieces of all that and and all that goes with with that aspect of how stressed out Jesus was in the moment. And rather than going there, rather than going there, I believe that this is actually one of the greatest displays of our Savior's conviction of His own bottom line. Of His own bottom line, and it really plays out this way. He is all in. And He's all in for you, and he's all in for me, and he's all in for everybody in what he has to do and what he has to walk through. And it doesn't make it necessarily easier, but he has one thing in mind. He has one thing on his mind in this arena, I believe, in that he's willing to do everything necessary to accomplish the Father's will. It's a whatever it takes mentality. Not always easy but it's so worth it. That's why it's such an awesome example for us. Because you never really enjoy or understand the goodness on the other side of trouble unless you actually blaze right into it and go through the difficult situation. And he was such, so firm in his conviction, even though his flesh was crying out, even though he knew the agony that was to be... Uh, and pain that was to be put on him. Yet look at the words. Look at the picture of full submission. Verse 39 Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, in other words, whatever it takes, regardless of how bad it is, not as I will, and he's saying, not as my flesh determines. That's what he's saying. Not as my flesh determines, not as my thoughts determine. Not as my mind in a human sense, because he's fully human and fully God. Not as my flesh would determine, but as your will. Let that be done. Let that be done. Not as I will, but as you will. The highest priority Jesus had was in doing simply the Father's will. Second thing that we see in verse 41 So full submission, full admission, verse 41. Full admission, and I think that this is where, frankly, we struggle. And when I say we, I'm talking about guys more than ladies. Because guys don't like to admit that we're weak. Guys don't like to admit that we have struggles and failure. Guys don't like to talk about uh, uh, the, the pushback of difficult things ahead of time. In retrospect, once we go through a difficult time, once we go through a trial or a tribulation or whatever, hey, we talk about those are the, those are the good old day stories, right? Those are the war stories. Those are the football battles. Those are the, the hard times of, of uh, difficult tasks. But he says in ahead of time with full admission, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 46, or 41, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this dynamic plays out in the garden this way. Was he talking about the disciples and their tendency to keep dozing off? Not paying attention, not watching and praying as they were told to do? Probably. But was he talking about his own humanity, his own struggle? I think so. In other words, his spirit was willing. But there's a battle going on there between the flesh and the spirit in this moment. And the way through that battle is not to deny that it's true, not to ignore that it's true, but actually to admit that it's true. And in, in that confession, in that, if you want to call it that, in that transparency is really what it is. In that moment of transparency, I believe that there's, ex, uh, there's an elevated <laughs> power, if you might say. There's energy there. Because you're admitting something is true, and in that admission you're also admitting that your need for the Father's power, your need for the Father's leading in our lives, our need for God to move when we know that we can't, but the Spirit's willing, there's a dynamic that goes on there for the life of the believer that's incredible. The highest hurdle is always overcoming the weakness of the flesh. The third dynamic there, the third thing we see in Jesus' bottom line is purposeful action. This is where it doesn't stay, as I mentioned at the very beginning, it doesn't stay in the hypothetical. He doesn't teach in hypotheticals. If this, then that. If that, then this. No, Jesus is a man of purposeful action, and we have to be also. Where he says in verse 46, after he'd spent time in prayer, after he had submitted himself to the Father's will, after he had admitted the struggles of the flesh, the temptations of the flesh, not succumbing to them, but praying through them, Then Jesus rises up with a statement. He says, in essence, he says, rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer's at hand. He's going right into the fire. He's diving right into the burning house in this story and saying, it's time to do something. It's time to get going. So let's go. This is going to happen. It's not going to go a different way. Let's just go for it despite the consequences, despite the pain, the suffering, despite the scattering of his guys, despite all of that, all of the potential hypotheticals that we struggle with in fear, Jesus says, no, let's go. It's time to go. He had purposeful action in what he did. The greatest love comes not by word, standing around talking about it. The greatest aspect of love is the go. It's action. And it's so energizing, I believe, as we go through this, to know that that's who our Savior was. He was a man of action. He wasn't soft. He wasn't, you know, this kicked back guy. He wasn't apathetical in any way. He was purposeful in what he did. So he said, let's go. Let's get up and let's get going. The greatest act of love flows out of the greatest point of conviction and is simply to move forward in the face of adversity. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus conquered the flesh and kept it in subjection to the Spirit. He conquered the flesh. He did this through the earnest prayer and intense and willful submission to God's plan. And it's good to know that when we face those types of trials that Jesus knows what it's like to want the Father's will but kind of struggle with it. When we're in those situations, when you're in those situations, when I'm in those situations, I find it incredibly encouraging and comforting to know that my Savior, that your Savior can fully relate with all that's going on between our ears in that moment with all that we're wrestling with. He can completely relate. He gives us a great example on how to then move forward. To act out of love yet dread the hurt and pain, to desire righteousness and obedience even when the flesh is screaming for relief. Our Savior was fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. That's out of Hebrews chapter 2. He had come to seek and save the lost, Luke 19 tells us, and he had accomplished his mission. Now, the story doesn't end here. That's not the end of the story. But he's staying on track. He's staying on target to this point in the story. He'd accomplished his mission even though it meant drinking from the cup of suffering. And that was why this passage, this is a reflection of how awesome in this passage his bottom line is. His bottom line, when he thinks bottom line, and I'm not putting words in his mouth, but I think that he thinks his bottom line is on your behalf. That he keeps moving forward on your behalf. And it's not just on your behalf to that you're elevated. It's on your behalf because you don't, and I know I don't have an escape from sin in any other way. That's why the passage starts with this idea of the remission of sins and ends with our Savior stepping right into the fire, stepping right into the direction of paying for and providing a pathway for that remission of sins. That's why his conviction is so inspiring to me. That's why his, his steadfastness in this whole process is, is, is so uplifting for the believer. And he sets that tone. He sets that example for you and I. Right? That's his bottom line. The so worship team will come on up. We'll uh, sing our last worship song. And then we'll close in prayer. And uh, we can all move on out and have an awesome Sunday afternoon. I encourage you to continue to read. I, I cut it short and for partway through the chapter. There's more to the chapter 26, a little bit more. I'd encourage you to go ahead and read that out. I'd encourage you to continue reading in the Gospels leading up to the next couple weeks, and Resurrection Sunday, more and more about these events, kind of from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way up to the Resurrection. We'll be celebrating that in two weeks. And and, uh, so let's go ahead and close their last worship song.